Let us pray. Our most gracious and holy Father, draw near to your people this day. Draw near to us who are gathered here. And plant your word within us. Take these words that we have heard from every part of Scripture and cause them to dwell deep within us. And that by your Spirit, may they bring forth the fruit that you desire. May they bring forth the fruit that you call for. That we would be changed, not only inwardly, but outwardly. And that our lives would be a continual reflection of that grace that you have bestowed upon us. That we would more and more become the image of Christ in this world. That as He is the perfect image of you, may we perfectly image Christ. That we would live in the image you have given us by creation and redemption. So pour your Spirit upon us this day and guide us evermore by our Lord Jesus through whom we pray. Amen. In our collect today, we hear the phrase, You govern all things, both in heaven and on earth. I love our colics in the prayer book because they make prayer look so absolutely easy and simple for us. They give us these very precise words that when you think and unpack them are full of grace and truth for us. Especially that simple statement of you govern all things, both in heaven and on earth. What does a governor do? In this old sense of using this word govern, it is one who rules. I mean, it could easily have said, you rule all things, both in heaven and on earth. But I think in a way, that word govern gives us a little bit more of a hands-on feel to what God is doing. That He is in charge, that He is working, that He is doing good for His people. Because immediately after that, our supplication in this prayer is that mercifully hear the supplications of your people. So we look to this governor who is in charge of all things above us. And he opens wide his arms and invites our words of mercifully hear our prayers. Mercifully hear of our great and varied needs and in our time grant us your peace. Make peace to exist between us and you for we are a people who have lived in rebellion. We are a people who have turned away from You throughout our lives. And so, as You govern everything, as You are in charge, as You rule, as You lay down Your statutes and Your laws that we are called to obey, hear our cries of need. And in hearing those cries of our needs, grant us Your peace. Give us Your peace during our days. Fill us with a sense of Your presence and Your abiding kindness and mercy upon us. And it's a beautiful colic that guides our worship this day. Especially, I think, as we hear these words from Jesus today about what is the great commandment and His challenging question to the, to the Pharisees. 
And so many ways they have been brought to a place of we can no longer speak to Him. We can no longer answer Him. We can no longer challenge Him. For He has turned everything back upon us. Whatever way we hit the ball into His court, He constantly knocks it back. And if He has the opportunity to serve back at us, we can't even touch it. We don't have a response to what He says. And the reason that Jesus can lay down these commandments that He can expound and bring out the reality of the law and the fact that He can challenge these Pharisees with these hard questions is that it's because Jesus is both the Messiah and the Son of God. And because of that, He will grant to His people the fulfillment of these laws that He lays down. Jesus is both the Messiah and the Son. And by being that, grants to His people the fulfillment of His commands. And we hear of these commands today. As Jesus has now silenced the Sadducees with a question of resurrection, answering that the resurrection of the dead is a reality because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The Sadducees could not respond to that, to that word from Him. So on one hand, the Pharisees could be excited because they believed in the resurrection and they were against the Sadducees in that regard. But it meant that the Messiah, this Jesus, this man that they were standing against had won a point in His favor. And so they send a lawyer, an expert in the law who is one of them, to go and challenge Jesus. And what is the question He asks of Him? What is the greatest commandment, teacher? What is the greatest commandment that God has given to us in His law? And Jesus, without missing a beat, sums it all up. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But then He follows it up and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. You see, with that statement of you shall love the Lord your God with your whole being, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. In some ways, you don't need that second word of you shall love the Lord, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, because we're such slippery people, we need to be, that law needs to be reinforced. For if we truly love God in that way, with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind, we would love our neighbor as ourselves. And so these two commandments stand over and against us because we know that we have not, neither fulfilled them nor kept them. You see, man is to love God with all of who He is, all of His faculties, with His whole being. That is what Jesus means with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Within our Anglican circles, we had this summarization of what the Archbishop Cramner, Thomas Cramner, was trying to teach us through his prayer book. That what the heart loves, the will does and the mind justifies. And in many ways, this heart, soul, and mind line up with that. You could almost replace soul with will, for the soul is the animating part of the body. The soul is what guides its actions, so to speak. And so in one sense... This lines up with that teaching that we draw out of the prayer book that our whole being, heart, will, and mind are to be given over to God just as our hearts 
Souls and minds are to be given over to God. We're to be conformed to God in every way. His love is to invade us and to be drawn out of us. And this kind of love that Jesus speaks of is not a mere feeling within. It's not warm fuzzies that we have toward another person. It's the sum total of commitment towards something, towards someone. Taking your whole life and saying, my life belongs to you now. Think of it in marriage. If we love our spouse and we're committed to our spouse, we don't give our spouse half of ourselves and hold on to that other half to offer to some other commitments. It's all or nothing. It's a commitment of service and care toward the spouse. Those traditional vows of taking the other for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death is a statement of utter commitment. And it is not to be broken save for the most grave of sins. And even in the midst of grave sin, there can be repentance and maybe even reconciliation. But it's all based from the get-go on that total commitment of the whole self. Our culture wants to reduce love down to those kind of squishy, warm feelings of enjoyment and warmth, but not the hardships of everyday life. The hardship of two individuals with different personalities wrestling throughout the life to live up to that commitment made that one day, a day that defined the rest of their lives. Another side to this kind of love that we have in marriage that is a picture of this love that God calls forth from us is that we always say, I am married. To imply an ongoing statement, an ongoing commitment. If I ever say, I was married, without any type of connotation, if I just say, oh, I was married, then the person hearing assumes that, oh, well, you're not married anymore. Your spouse has died or there's been a divorce or a separation. It creates that implication that there's no longer a marriage. And so we always say, I am married. Oh, I am married to my wife. Yes, because it's ongoing. A commitment that goes on and on regardless of the mistakes, regardless of the missteps, regardless of the errors and the sins that are committed. It's a continual walk through life with that other person. And this human reality is a reflection of what God calls forth from us. He created marriage to be a reflection of the love of the church for the Father and the Father's love for the church, of God's desire to redeem and to commit and to save the church. This great commandment of loving God with your whole being is the most pressing of all realities upon mankind. It is the matter above all other matters. It matters that you are fully committed to, connected to, and living for this one God. That you are walking before Him, for He is the God of the universe. To be bent toward His service. Because He made all things. He created all things to be in relation to Him. And so He commands that we turn to Him. To know Him, because that's what we were made to do. We are the kind of creatures that are made to know God Himself to have a relationship toward Him. Because love is not merely obeying laws. It is having an affection, a desire toward this other. It's not only those warm feelings, but it is that commitment. That commitment involves warmth, affection, love, care toward God. He didn't make us to be creatures who wander aimlessly. 
grabbing hold of whatever catches our fancy. We are made with a particular end goal. And that end goal is to love this one God with all of who we are because He made us for Himself. That He would love us with an infinite love, with a divine love, with a gracious, compassionate love poured upon us. And as we wrap our minds around that kind of love that God pours on us and calls forth from us this commitment, Jesus turns and says also a commandment like that, a second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus says that it is like it, He is emphasizing that it has the same authority. It has the same comprehensiveness as this great commandment, as the great and first commandment. The greatest is that your whole being is to be taken up with God. And Jesus says the second has that same weight placed upon it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which for me sometimes makes me ask, how is that even possible? My whole being is taken up with the utter and complete love of God. But then I'm told to love my neighbor as myself. To pour out that same kind of love toward the neighbor. To care for him. To help him. If all of my being is focused toward God, how do I give any part of me to the plight of another? How can I love both God and man? How can these have the same authority? It's because God can command what He desires. And He can make these commands be fulfilled in us. That same level of commitment toward God is given toward man as well. What can Jesus mean? Well, one thing He does not mean in our modern readings of this, that to love your neighbor as yourself means, well, you have to get to know yourself first. You have to learn to love yourself before you can love another. If you can't put yourself first, then how can you ever put someone else first? Sorry, no one's ever actually said that last statement. Put yourself first so you can learn how to put others first. But that's what that kind of becomes. When you say you have to learn to love yourself before you can love anyone else. It is, in essence, saying serve yourself above everyone else so that you can learn how to serve others. That's a complete subversion of the fulfillment of this law. The reality is that we easily love ourselves, don't we? We easily want to put ourselves first. We know exactly how to take care of ourselves. We know when we need mercy, anytime we make a mistake, we say, give me mercy. But as soon as someone else wrongs us, we demand justice for that person. We make exceptions for ourselves and want the letter of the law applied to those who wrong us, to someone who might oppose us, to someone who might look wrongly at us. We excuse ourselves, but demand that others be given the full weight of the law. It's like the unforgiving servant in that case. The king forgave him his massive debt, but he went out and held the other servant who owed him 20 bucks accountable. He wanted mercy for himself, but not for this other guy. That's our everyday lives. We can always come up with a reason for why we lied and why it was okay for us to lie, but not for someone to lie to us. We can come up with all of our excuses for, for wanting someone else's stuff and saying it's okay to have that feeling. I know that being hateful towards someone's not appropriate, but listen, I was really hungry that day, so I said things I didn't really mean, so 
I don't really need to apologize because that just because we excuse our misbehaviors, but we would never excuse that in others so easily. When the tables are turned and we are the ones who are sinned against, we become the victims of mistreatment. We want everything to be held down upon that person, the law to come down upon them. That is how we love ourselves in ourselves. We excuse our behaviors. So I know how to love myself in a very broken way. I want mercy. I want to do that which I want to do. I want to be forgiven. I don't want people to bear down upon me with the full weight of the law. And so in that way, once I understand that, then I know how to love my neighbor is to extend mercy to my neighbor, to extend kindness to my neighbor, because that is what I desire to have for myself. I want mercy from God, therefore I need to extend mercy and forgiveness to all those around me. And so in many ways, I've come to think of framing this thought of loving your neighbor as yourself. And it's not original to me, I can't remember which commentary I originally read it in, but it's to love your neighbor instead of yourself. To love your neighbor above yourself. To love your neighbor in place of yourself. If you think you have a right to mercy, your neighbor has it and more. No grudges are to be held against your neighbor. You can't hold their wrongdoing against you if you have ever thought that your wrongdoing against another should be overlooked. If I think I need mercy, if I think I need forgiveness, then I am called to extend that very forgiveness to others. The weight of the law bearing down upon us that we want mercy, but we find it so hard to extend mercy. We want love, but we find it so hard to give love. God commands us to love. He commands us to love Himself with our whole being and to lay down our lives for others. How can both carry that authority and that weight? Because they're intertwined with each other. When one loves God with his whole being, he cannot help but be changed by that very God. That he would then truly love his neighbor as himself. That he would love his neighbor above himself. Or as St. Paul said, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's how Paul puts that statement to love your neighbor as yourself. To count them more significant to put their needs above yours. And how are we to understand love then? But to look to what God has done for us. What kind of love does God show His people? Again, St. Paul says in Romans, for when we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. St. John says, and this is the love of God made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might love through Him. And in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the love of God toward man. That His eternal Son comes into this world, takes on human flesh and dies for our brokenness. He dies for our rebellion. He takes that rebellion upon Himself before the Father so that a clear path to forgiveness can be made for all who come to Him. That is the love of God toward man. Pouring out His whole self for man's sake. So God has a right to command us 
to respond in the same way, to give our whole selves to Him, to make our lives situated around Him. And so the greatest commandment, love God with your whole being, is fulfilled by Christ. For in His life, He does love God with His whole being. He submits to every command of God. He perfectly walks the path that God has placed before Him. But He fulfills that second half of the commandment, that second commandment that is like the first, loving His neighbor as Himself. For in His love of God, He loves His neighbor by laying down His life for His neighbor. He gives of Himself to us and continually gives to us of Himself. For not only does He take away our sins, He is raised from the dead and He imparts that new life He has received into our hearts and minds and into our bodies. He imparts new life to us so that we can then walk in that path that God has laid before us. Through baptism, through the Word, through the Lord's Supper, that life of Jesus comes into us. That forgiveness of Jesus wrought upon the cross is bestowed upon us and through His resurrection and feeding on Him, we are given that new life that our bodies so desperately need. That life that was lost by Adam and Eve in the fall. All of that is wrapped up in Jesus fulfilling these two commandments. For these two commandments are the summary of the Ten Commandments themselves. To have no other gods. To not take God's name in vain. To not worship idols. To honor the Sabbath and remember it. To honor our parents. To not commit adultery. To not lie. To not steal. To not murder. To not covet. These two words from Jesus this day are a summarization of that. And so to understand the depth of what we are called to do, we have to look to what the summary is about. And so we look back to those Ten Commandments to understand how love works out in our lives. That loving God with our whole being means looking to Him as the one true God and submitting our lives fully to Him. That loving our neighbors as ourselves means we are in community with others. That we are expressing care and love and caring for what they have. And honoring what they have. And loving them as people bearing God's image. And in all of this, the Pharisees are quiet. And so Jesus turns the tables here in these last few moments to ask them, who is the Son of David? Or who is the Messiah? What does the Messiah have to do with David? Whose son is He? And they quickly answer, The Messiah is the son of David, after all. Oh, how it must have grated on their nerves to have to use that phrase right then, the son of David. Because this is during Holy Week. This is just days before Jesus' death. It may even be Wednesday at this point. I can't remember the the days of the week where this conversation occurs. But just on Sunday, Jesus had come into Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. The people acclaimed Him as the Son of David. The Pharisees had to hear that and hear Jesus ask them, who is the Messiah? Whose son is He? Knowing that everyone had just proclaimed Him to be the Son of David and here the Pharisees have to say, He's the Son of David. He's the one who descends from our great King. Thus He has the right to be the King of all. He has the right to be the King of the people of Israel. The one who will go out and slay our enemies. That's how they viewed David as this warrior king who would deal with their enemies. And they're right. He is the son of David. But there's something more to being that. 
He said, how then did David say in the Spirit? In Psalm 110, David writes, In the Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So the son of David, who is the Messiah, is yet David's Lord. How can that be? How can a son be greater than his father? How can the son be the ruler over his father? And even more so, how can this one who is the son of David sit beside God, sit beside Yahweh? For none can sit beside Yahweh. Yahweh is the great and glorious God of all. He is the creator of all things. How can a creature sit on his, by his throne, sit on his right hand, which is in essence sitting on the same throne as God? Jesus knows that they are hearing this. He knows that they are being confused and that this is breaking their comprehension of the Messiah in that moment. For how can a man descended from other men yet simultaneously hold the authority of the Creator God of all? How can He have that authority? How can He have that power? How can He have that glory? For God shares His glory with no one but Himself. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. If David calls Him Lord, and this Lord sits by the power in heaven, that He sits by the throne of the Father, of, the, of Yahweh Himself, how is He His Son? And the Pharisees could not answer. How is it this human has divine authority? In this moment, with this one verse from the book of Psalms, written by David, Jesus says, in the Spirit, so it's fully inspired, Jesus points out that there is something mysterious about this Messiah. That He's not a mere man. That somehow He can sit and have the authority and power and eminence and preeminence and glory that the Yahweh Himself has. So the Messiah, David says, must sit by Yahweh. Must share that throne of power with Yahweh. While Yahweh deals with the Messiah's answers, the Messiah's enemies. And there, at the foundation of it all, is that Jesus is revealing to the Pharisees, though they don't want to hear it, that the Messiah is both the root of David's rule and the offspring of David himself. The Messiah somehow causes David to exist because he has the divine power of God. And yet, his very existence comes from David. The only way that that can work out is that that Messiah is both truly God, the second person of the Trinity, that Yahweh is much more complex than we ever understood. That the second person becomes a man through David, through the various children of David, this Son of God, this divine being, this one who has always existed as Yahweh becomes a human being, descended from the very one He created. And by being that, He can fulfill everything for us. Even for the Pharisees, He can take their sins, He can take their unrighteousness that they think is righteousness, He can take our brokenness, our rebellion, our pushing back against what He has called us to do, and He can deal with all of that because He is God and man, the Messiah and the Son. And so He can tell us to love God with our whole being because He will become a man to do that very thing for us. 
And he can say, love your neighbor as yourself because he will be the very man who will love his neighbor as himself. And through his death and resurrection, bring that righteous work that he accomplished, that love, that affection into us and transform us and change us and put us upon a new path. So that even when our old broken hearts break out of us and commit sins, there is still someone to take care of us and continue that transformative power in us. And like I said, in marriage, it is a commitment for better or for worse. So even on my worst days, Rachel puts up with me because she made a commitment and has a true affection toward me. It is the same with the love of God toward us. As He calls us to love Him, He has poured out all of His love upon us. So that even when we have our fits and we stumble and we fall, He picks us back up and says, Return to Me, weary one. Return to Me, O broken one, and be renewed. Be transformed once more and receive the work of Christ for you. Receive the Messiah and the Son. Receive the fullness of my love for you that you might reflect that love back to me and to your neighbor. And so may we embrace this one who is Messiah and Son. That those commandments He gives to us of loving God with our whole being and loving our neighbor as ourselves would be fulfilled in us by Him. That He would work through us to accomplish that and send us forth to do those things. To love God with our whole being in all of our actions. And simultaneously, to love our neighbor as ourselves. For that, all of the law depends. And all of the law has been fulfilled by Christ doing that very thing for us. And so may we embrace it this day and receive from Him His renewal and His grace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.